Welcome to Into Theology. I am joined with Ian Clary, and we're on our final day of talking about a great work of theology in the ancient world, the, the book of Job. And we are, uh, we finished chapter 28 last time, I believe, so we're in 29 to the end of the book today. So of course, we'll give a big picture summary, and we'll try to get into some of the details. Um, we're going to open by reading a portion of Job 31, and I think you said beginning at, was it verse 16? Yeah, we'll read from Job uh, 31, 16 to the end of the chapter. Um, sort of to frame this here, um, this is now kind of Joel, Job's like kind of final, you know, uh, defense of himself in terms of his own personal righteousness. Uh, he's had all these accusations against uh, against him from his various counselors who are saying, hey, you know, retribution, you obviously are suffering this way because of something that you've done. And uh, and so Job is, is going to maintain uh, all the way through that, hey, listen, whatever is happening to me, it's not because I've done anything wrong. And so here in this kind of like final defense, uh, he's, he's articulating this. We're just going to kind of jump in in the, in the middle of it here. So verse 16, Job says, if I've withheld anything that the poor have desired or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail or have eaten my morsel alone, the fatherless has not eaten of it. For from my youth, the fatherless grew up with me as a father. And from my mother's womb, I guided the widow. If I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing or the needy without covering, if his body has not blessed me, and if he was not warmed with the fleece of my sheep, if I've raised my hand against the fatherless because I saw my help in the gate, then let my shoulder blade fall from my shoulder and let my arm be broken from its bucket. For I was in terror of calamity from God and I could not have faced his majesty. If I have made gold my trust or called fine gold my confidence, if I have rejoiced because my wealth was abundant or because my hand had found much, if I have looked at the sun when it has shone or the moon moving in splendor and my heart has not been secretly enticed, my mouth has kissed my hand, this also would be iniquity to be punished by the judges, for I would have been false to God above. If I have rejoiced at the ruin of him who hated me or exulted when evil overtook him, I have not let my mouth sin by asking for his life with a curse. If the men of my tent have not said, who is there that has not been filled with his meat? The sojourner has not lodged in the street. I have not opened my doors to the traveler. If I have concealed my transgression as others do, which is probably worth noting that one as we uh, work through. If I, have not, if I have concealed my transgressions as others do by hiding my iniquity in my heart because I stood in great fear of the multitude and the contempt of families terrified me so that I kept silence and did not go out of doors. Oh, that I had one ear to hear me. Here's my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it on me as a crown. I would give him an account of all my steps like a prince I would approach him. If my land has cried out against me and its furrows have wept together, if I've eaten its yield without payment and made its owners breathe their last, let thorns grow instead of wheat and foul weeds instead of barley. And it says that the words of Job are ended. And... Um, Man, um, you read this description of the guy. My first thought when I read it is, what a cool guy, <laughs> you know? Like, I would like to hang out with him. <laughs> and he just, he just seems like, you know, he said he's basically saying, look, man, like I've seen the, I've seen the fatherless. I've been a father to them, you know, like the widows, those who aren't clothed. I've clothed them. I've, I've been there for people. Like, I'm, I'm highly aware of the sufferings of others. I've got all these resources, and I'm going to do good with them. Like, that's just who I am, you know. And, uh, and he's, and you can, you can almost sense like there's this frustration. He's, he's like, look, I'm not hiding my sins and, um, nobody can see it. And then verse, verse 35, he says, Oh, that I had one ear 
just one ear to hear what I'm saying and actually understand, right? And he says, this is my signature, this is my motto. He says, let the almighty answer me. And that's a bit of a foreboding statement, right? Um, he says, oh, that somebody actually writes an indictment against me, right? By my adversary, like, where is it? Where is it? And, uh, and that's gonna kind of lead us into a couple things. It's gonna lead us into to Elihu's response and then it's going to lead us right into to God's response to it. So there's so many neat things in this passage that we yeah. just read. Um, what, one contextual point is that, so Job is some sort of priest, meaning he's a lot, he does, he does, you know, Job one talks about sacrifices and all this. Yeah. So th there's probably a sense in which he knows that he's sinned in his life. I don't think he means my entire life. I've never made a mistake. And yet he's completely confident in his innocence. Yeah. I actually think that's probably a good, in other words, that's okay. Um, in fact, God at the end, I think in Job 42, well, I'll double check, but I think it's 42 offhand, says that, God, that Job spoke rightly twice. Yes. So what he's doing here is denying the accusations of the three people counseling him so far, who say, basically, Job, because you have done some bad deed, necessarily you are suffering yeah yeah i reminded you know of uh, john i think it's john yeah john nine uh, what did this man do wrong you know jesus that he was born blind did he sin or did someone else no one it was actually for god's glory yeah. right so that suffering in this life is not necessarily caused by our decisions sometimes it is but not necessarily so so I think a lot of times we're tempted to see someone suffering or have, you know, they, they lost a job, or they're going through some trial and we say, well, what do they do wrong? No. Uh, Job tells, punches us in the face and says, don't do that. <laughs> yeah, don't jump <laughs> I mean, to that conclusion. Yeah, it's possible, but it's not necessary. Yeah. Um, so that's incredibly helpful. Um, I, I was looking at a note uh, as you were reading by Robert Alter and just the idea that he affirms monotheism. It's just yeah. a small thing, but it's fascinating, right? So yeah. verse uh, 22, God is my fear. Verse 28 uh, talks about God above. Th that's important. Um, you mention it, but like the foreboding statements, like in 35, would yeah. that I had someone to hear me out. Here's my oh, mark. Somebody. <laughs> yeah. somebody is listening. It's not who you're expecting. <laughs> Man, you just made a very insightful point. Someone is listening. Me? Yeah. <laughs> now think about it. Cause that's what's, that's what's about to happen. God will. Right. Like, he doesn't, God to him is kind of like outside of his experience, but God actually hears and does answer in a few, in a number of chapters. Yeah. That's insightful what you just said, because I think a lot of times we feel like, you know, no one's listening. Um, Job is um, like, like Christ and a, a just, a, someone who's just, but still suffering. Yeah. And now Christ was suffering because of unjust people. Job is suffering for different reasons, but it's, it's a similar idea. Uh, they both can say that they are innocent in this case, right? Yeah. It's interesting, though, he says here, too, in 36, right? Uh, he's like, if, if this indictment could be read against me, I would own it. Yeah. Right. If I've done something, I will own it. He's like, I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it on me as a crown, right? I would give an account of all my steps. And like a prince, I would approach him. If somebody could actually show me what I've done wrong, I will own this wrongdoing and I will actually thank the person who's really shown it to me. And again, that's also a precursor, right? Because what's God going to do? He's going to show him. And what's Job's response going to be, as we'll see in a minute, right? Is that like, he's like, like a prince, I, would I will treat him like my king, <laughs> you know? 
Well, that's a good point too. Like, so again, while he knows that he's innocent in this case, he's willing to admit wrongs. He just said, I didn't do anything wrong in this yeah. case. Yeah. Um, I think sometimes like in our Christian life, like we, we recognize that we sin all the time, but sometimes we can fall into this pattern. Where we're always like, you know, you know, my, my righteousness is like filthy rags and I'm the worst ever. But like, actually, if, if Christ, re- if the spirit regenerates you, you can do good. And yeah. so this is, this is God working in you. So you don't celebrate it as if it's your virtue as such. Yeah. But it's okay to say like, I was kind, yeah. <laughs> you know, like it's, you know, or, or, you know, I did not do evil in this case. So that's a bit refreshing. I, I did want to talk about verse 33 just really briefly. So, yeah, yeah I mean, it was where it's worth noting this, what's going on here. A little bit. So can you read it and then also read the footnote in the ESV? Yeah. So he's saying here, right. He's, 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 he's kind of saying these things like, look, if I've done these types of wrongs, let me know. And he says if, in verse 33, if I've concealed my transgressions, as others do by hiding iniquity in my heart. And then for the others do, there's a footnote in the ESV that says, or as Adam did. And so it's like, it's a bit confusing, you know, cause like what, what is actually going on here? Like who are the others? Is there a reference to a historical person named Adam? Is it a general humanity statement? This is what humans do. So like, you know, how do we navigate that? Yeah. And so like, if you go to the King James version, I looked at it, it does have Adam there. Other translations as a, as a name, like as a name, as a name, yeah, Adam. So what's that? What's that? What's behind this is that the Hebrew word Adam is the name Adam, but it also could mean humankind. It's a word that means both things, right? Just like Eve's name means uh, living or the mother of all living, but more literally, living probably is what it's the the, the straight translation. Yeah. Adam means humankind. So. Um, that's what I think what's happening here is I think it's very possible. That it's Adam, just the way that it's formed in Hebrew. It's not a slam dunk. Like, obviously that's why translations have, you know, they kind of backpedal and, and try to be safe and all that. And it's totally fine to do. I suspect it's Adam. And you might think, well, you know, Job doesn't appear to have any access to the Torah, the Pentateuch, to the book of Genesis. So how could he know about yeah. Adam? And I would just make the note that, I mean, I think Adam is, is a real, real historical person. And that that's accessible to the world. I think someone like Melchizedek in Genesis 14 could have known about Adam and Noah um, because it happened in real history and not necessarily having a Bible yet. doesn't mean that you can't know what happened truly and how God works in the world. It just might mean that you don't have the, the inspired text with you at at that moment. We definitely, I mean, we know that like, um, you know, Hebrew people, had a very high view of oral tradition and maintained oral tradition with like a really kind of pristine character as it's handed down the line. So there's every reason to think that like the oral tradition is around in that time where people would have known, you know, these events that have been happening. These people, it's also interesting, right? It's like, it's exactly what Adam does in Genesis, right? So right. it's like, he actually does try to hide his, his, his transgressions, right? He's fallen now. He's like, whoa, like him and Eve are hiding and where are you you know and all that kind of stuff so he blames blame shifts and all that so it's definitely possible i i kind of think it's probable but you know it's one of those things where i don't really need to like (laughs) stand on the hill and and fight someone over because it's it's, i get it there's both views are are, are possible I, i think it's interesting though i think it's helpful to see that the bible does recognize itself across the canon i think that when things happen in real history they they actually happen so people know about them we're so far away in time that maybe it's a little bit difficult for us to like conceive of an oral culture that could talk about these things. (laughs) And, um, but anyways, 
I think that's helpful. This then ends Job's kind of talk. He, he does think, that, even in that line there at the end of 40, right? The words of Job are ended. It gives a sense again of like, there's, there's, there seems like this kind of like divine courtroom that's happening here. You know, you've got like this accuser that's Satan. You've got like God is kind of presiding over the whole thing. And uh, they're almost like legal cases that are being made against Job by all these other witnesses yep. against yep. him. And then it's like, he gives his final statement, right? Here's my statement. And now he's almost like he's awaiting a verdict in a weird way. It's like, okay, his statement is done now. Here's his chance in the dock, in the courtroom. And his, his words are done now. And so now you're going to get this other guy that's going to show up, right? What, what is funny is that you, you could, if God just started speaking at this point, it would probably make sense, right? Because he's, he's saying, I wish someone could hear my case. And then God says, you know, where were you and so on. But then you have a guy named uh, Elihu who just kind of like, is almost like, I'm a surprise witness, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> let me just talk. Like and he, Judge Judy or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's Judge Judy. Well, guy, well, hold on. Um, and it's interesting that chapter 32 begins and says, look, and these three men, you know, the, the three accusers or the three friends rather, uh, left off answering Job because he was right in his own eyes. Meaning they're like, you know what? If Job thinks he's right, what, what, who cares about him? Yeah. Casting pearls before swine. He's right yeah, in his yeah. own eyes. What are we going to do about it? Right. Right. And remember, they were saying a lot of true things. So they were probably genuine uh, believers in divinity and so on, but they, they still made a mistake. Yeah. Then it goes, and then, uh, so Elihu, the son of Berchel, the Buzite, from the clan of Ram, flared up in anger. <laughs> That's always an interesting sign. Uh, James 1.20 says that the anger of man does not reach the anger of God or something to that effect. Anyways, against Job, his anger flared, for his claim to be in the right more than God. And against his three companions, his anger flared because they had not found an answer that showed Job guilty. Yeah. So he's miffed because of the way that he talks about his innocence. And that God needs to answer. He's also miffed because uh, the three didn't find a way to make Job guilty. It's like they yeah. failed in their court case, as you were noting. Yeah. It continues. Um, I'm in roughly verse four, maybe five. And Elihu waited out Job's words, for they were his elders. And Elihu saw that the three men could utter no answer, and his anger flared. Yeah, it's uh, interesting, right? Like you get this repetition. I mean, it's obviously very poetic here. You get the repetition to make the point. You know, it's like, was it three times it talks about him being, in my translation here, the ESV, it burned with anger. Mm -hmm. you know, so he's just enraged. Like, he could just, he's seething. He's so mad. He's the younger guy. So he's got to, he recognizes there's a pecking order. He's going to keep his mouth shut here, but he's mad anyway. He's mad at Job. He's mad at the other three. And like, there's a sense where you can kind of like appreciate him. You know, he's like, he's trying to defend God's character here. Right. right. That's the issue for him. It's like, whoa, 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 you're trying to justify yourself, man. You obviously did something wrong. And you're you're actually besmirching God in your defense of yourself, Job. And so you can appreciate the impulse behind his indignation. Right. You could say it's a, it's a kind of a righteous indignation, at least, it's how he's, at least that's how he feels. So, so my read of Elihu is that he speaks better than the three, not quite as good as Job, and definitely not as good as God. No. So I don't really have Elihu as the bad guy or the good guy. I think he says a ton of true things in this case. And I also think a lot of what he says uh, really leads into God's speech. It's kind of in a literary sense, it really builds up to what God's about to say. Yeah. But there are a few things that just kind of make me pull back from fully affirming exactly the, that Elihu gets it right. right. One is what I just read. I mean, 
we know that Job's not exactly guilty in terms of like he's defending himself and then God vindicates him. Yeah. Um, we know that his anger here maybe isn't prudent, but he says a number of interesting things. He makes some claims about himself. So in 32.8 and also in 33.4, he says things like this. So 32.8, yet it is a spirit in man and Shaddai's breath that grants discernment. So he, he's, he's actually saying, look, I have God's discernment. I have the spirit. Yeah. And then in 30, uh, 33, 4, yeah. God's spirit has made me and Shaddai's breath has quickened me. Yeah. He's kind of like, look, I'm pretty awesome. I've heard all this stuff, but I'm actually speaking for the spirit. Okay. Yeah. Well, okay. Then in 32, 12, he says things like, and I attended to you and look, Job has no refuter, none to yeah. answer his talk among you. <laughs> oh, okay. You're going to refute Job. Yeah. And really throughout a lot of his speech, he is attempting to do what the other three couldn't do. So for example, in 30, 34 verse five, and let me know if I have the verses wrong. Cause I, I have a different verse number in the, in the one that I'm looking at. So if I get it wrong, I'll just switch over. No, you're 30, good. 34, five. I look, he says, look, uh, or four, let's start in four. Actually, let us, let us, uh, let us take us, wait, let us take us a case to court. Let us know. What is good between us? For Job has said, I am in the right, and God has diverted my case. He lies about my case. I'm sore wounded from his shaft for no crime. <laughs> I don't really know if Job said that, by the way. <laughs> uh, <laughs> meaning, Job says he's innocent, but it, it almost seems like Elihu it's is... almost like he's like working out what he thinks are implications of what Job yeah. is saying. Um, and it kind of goes on, but it really looks like he's trying to do the same thing. Um, so... Uh, uh, maybe uh, in 34, 31, did he ever say to God, I shall bear my punishment and not sin? <laughs> I did not see you must instruct me. If I've done wrong, I won't do it again. And on and on, it, it, uh, 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 verse 35, Job speaks without knowledge and his words are without any sense. And so on. So it, it does seem like the things that Elihu are saying is basically, Job, you're still guilty. Yeah. Um, that doesn't mean that everything Elihu says is wrong or bad or worse. It's just... He seems to have pretty good theology in terms of speaking about who God is. And what he says is going to align with what God is about to say about himself. So you don't have to doubt those kinds of words. But I think he's still getting it wrong. Um, I think that he is misunderstanding Job's innocence and assuming this idea of, um, what's it called again? It's like the law of retribution. Yeah. Namely, that every time something bad happens, the cause is our own personal mistake or sin, yeah. which is often true, but not always true. Yeah. So, so that's my read of him. I think some people like, well, we might talk to Owen Anderson on here like as a bonus episode. He has, he has a book on Job coming out. But I know that Owen has a, a positive view of Elihu. It might actually be the same as mine because I don't know if mine's super negative at this point. Um, but it's also not, I'm also a little su suspect with Elihu. Yeah. The last thing I just want to say, and then we can get into maybe what God, God's final speech is at the very end of the book, and we'll, we can end there as well. Um, if you look at 42 and verse uh, 7, it says this, And it happened after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz the, the Tamanite, My wrath has flared against you and your two companions, because you have not spoken rightly of me, as did my servant Job. Yeah. And again, and now take for yourself seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer a burnt offering for yourselves. And Job, my servant, will pray for you on your behalf. 
um there's 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 he, he says he says it elsewhere too i thought that as my that job spoke rightly but anyways at least once here yeah um you, you can see here that god is saying like job's in the right yeah. job spoke rightly he's my priest or my servant which by the way uh it's wild that job is called servant here i just noticed that i mean i guess i had to underline so i must have noticed it before but servant is is a, the singular servant is a term for israel in at least in isaiah that that uniquely describes them as god's people who are like the nations fascinatingly enough at one it's always a single it's a ved but it becomes plural which i think of a deem at one point after chapter 53 the one servant is then uniquely united as the the uh, the king of israel you know the, the branch who suffers and then in, I think it's chapter 55 for the first time in Isaiah, Eved becomes Evedim because the tents expand after the suffering servant. So then now there is Evedim in the kingdom of God, huh. um, which, which is like the church, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then um, I mean, you see this in Christ too, right? Where he, he comes to serve. Book of Acts, yeah. he's called the servant. It's a, it's a, it's a Christological title. Uh, yeah. I think in Greek, is it Pace? I think I can't remember offhand. Yeah, Pace Pidos, I think. Someone will hear this and be like, you idiot. <laughs> the Greek is... <laughs> Uh, but, but actually in Acts, at least as an early title of Christ, because servant, Aved in Hebrew, yeah. is, a, is the suffering servant, right? Isaiah 53. Yeah. But so yeah. fascinating in Isaiah, it becomes plural after that. Yeah. Uh, it's hugely important in the theology of Isaiah. And anyways, to call someone a servant in Hebrew scripture is uh, like this. The servant of God, rather, is kind of a unique term. It's an elevated term. Oh, boy, That's all I'm trying that. to say. <laughs> Not, but I don't, again, I just noticed this or at least re-noticed it. So don't take my like theological insight as like deep study. It's just popped in. Yeah. Oh, I like it though. It's awesome. It, it's funny with Elihu too, right? There seems to be kind of a certain sorts of ironies in the way that he speaks. Um, you know, in 33.3, he says, my, my words declare the uprightness of my heart and what my lips know, they speak sincerely. So he's like, he's basically saying here, you're calling yourself Job, you're saying that you're the upright one. Listen, my words are telling you I'm the upright one, you know? But then the irony is, is that he's actually, he's wrong and he's actually not being upright, you know? That's like this kind of like funny irony that, that's happening here. Is he's just, you can just see he's letting fly on Job here. And it's, it's, it's like, it's one more form of suffering for the guy, you know? It's like one more person is coming after him, you know? And, um, you know, what, what, what's he going to do? He's got, he's crying out for somebody to come in and actually vindicate him. Um, yeah. as it. So uh, anyways, Elihu, uh, just as a quick summary thing, we should feel okay about him. It's, he's, he transitions into the speech of God. He doesn't speak as well as God does. And I don't think he speaks as well as Job does, but he it's close. Yeah. So I'm, I'm in the camp of like, Elihu's interesting. <laughs> I'm not going to like hang my, uh, hang my hat on him as being the star of the show. He's, I actually think God is the star of the show in Job. Sure. In terms yeah, of I mean, the, uh, speeches. If the issue is for, for, for Elihu and trying to figure out whether he's right or wrong, it's like, well, God, God does vindicate Job and he vindicates him against these accusations that he, Elihu himself is making, you know? So I, I would say that, that I think you're right. Like Elihu is, is trying to, He's got a view of God, God and his, his divine justice. He's holy um, and all these sorts of things. There's a misunderstanding. He doesn't, it's like almost like we could say he doesn't really understand grace. 
and because uh, it's hard to under there's like what is the mechanism of grace at this point right and it's like you can see it throughout the book there's this crying out for a redeemer a mediator somebody's going to come and advocate on job's behalf and so that seems to be where the mechanism of grace is going to yeah. lie who just doesn't quite get someone know? needs to come yeah so 36 37 talks about the wonders of god and so i think that that is the right part of elihu the greatness of god but yeah, as you noted the greatness of god is right but the grace of God, he's missing to some degree. Yeah. It's hard to know exactly how he is, but he's missing it. It's just funny too, because in 37, right, there's all this like natural language that occurs that we see a lot in Job. And, you know, he's saying things like uh, about God, right? So you could go anywhere. It's like verse five, God thunders wondrously with his voice, does great things we cannot comprehend. Verse six, for this, uh, for, to the snow, he says, fall on the earth. Likewise, the downpour, his mighty downpour. Uh, he seals up the hand of every man that all men uh, who made uh, whom he made uh, may know it. Then the beasts go into their lairs and remain in their dens. You know, from its chamber comes the whirlwind, all this like ice and all this kind of stuff, right? Thick clouds, all this natural language, right? Of God having total control. God will do the same thing, right? He's like, where were you? And like, I cast Orion into the sky. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's all that same kind of natural language here. And yet it's like, it's like Elihu is getting at something, but then still doesn't get it. And so God actually will use his own language, right? Again, in a weird way against Elihu, although it's not stated explicitly, it seems very subtle to me. Which teaches us that we can say right theological things, but in practice, uh, be bad counselors. We yeah. might misunderstand grace, even if we understand the greatness and majesty of God. And I think Sometimes you know this, you, you meet someone who's, who's stone cold, they might be able to talk about divine simplicity or whatever, and you're like, but, but yeah. I don't, but that's, something's off, right? And I think maybe that's Elihu a little bit, where he's formally correct, but he's missing yeah. something that needs to be there. And I think God, God, well, really, God and Job is a corrective, and the conclusion we'll get to is that the blessing is greater than the, the curse. Yeah, um, it's funny too, because like with, with Elihu, it's like he's, he's got all this anger but it's this misplaced indignation as we've kind of said right yeah and so it kind of reflects in his character and the way he's actually treating another human being who's suffering it's like could you imagine going to somebody who's lost their family lost their possessions who's visibly ill from what's happening yeah, to them? job's kids just died <laughs> all like, dead and you imagine going up to him and saying hey man you deserve this you deserve your house burning down you deserve your family dying in a car crash you deserve the cancer that you have because God, God is angry with you because of what. And because God is great, you know what? That's a it's a really good point. Uh, putting it that starkly is kind of what yeah. happens. Um, so then we come to chapter thirty-eight, and God speaks. It's one of the most unique passages in Scripture because you have a long, multi-chapter portion of Scripture, which is the direct speech of God. It strikes me that Job, for that reason, is maybe undervalued as a, as um as a way to understand God Himself in His direct revelation. I mean, it's just He's speaking here, right? It's kind of like Revelation has so many words from Christ. It is Revelation. Uh, sorry, the Book of Revelation. Oh, sorry, the Book of Revelation. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> sometimes you don't think of Revelation as Christ speaking, but chapters two and three are literally Christ speaking for for two chapters. Yeah, and so you, you kind of forget that. Um, all, all scriptures inspired. I'm not trying to play that against each other it's unique it's special right but and, it's it's, ama it's amazing how this is revelatory and like 38 1 it's like it's weird that go that, that yahweh now is the one who's speaking oh uh, yeah right? that's a good point yeah and it's yahweh speaking out of what he's speaking out of his effects he's just speaking 
the very creation that 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 Elihu is pulling from in 37, mm. God is now speaking out of the wind. He's speaking out of this whirlwind to Job, and it's now Yahweh who's speaking. And it is about knowledge, right? He's like, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? And so it's like the, the issue is, and you'll, you'll kind of see this, right? Like even in, when Job finally repents in 42, right? It's like he gives in 42, 3, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? He says, therefore, I've uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And like, you can see here that like, what's, what's the fundamental problem? Knowledge of God. We don't know God, <laughs> you know, which actually takes us back to our earlier podcast series with Calvin and like having to know yourself and know God, right? In the beginning of yep. the institute. So like, our, what, is, what is humanity's fundamental problem? It's knowledge of God. We don't have a right knowledge of him. We need revelation. We actually need God to speak to us mm. in the midst of our, our experience in order to reveal himself to us rightly. I, I think the significance of speaking out of the whirlwind, uh, sometimes we undervalue the created signs that God gives us. I mean, the, the fire in the bush, it's yeah. significant that it's fire. The yeah. dark loom on top of Mount Sinai, the closer Moses gets to God, the darker his vision is of God right? Because it gets yeah. darker in the middle. Yeah. And so there's something about this. I mean, even in the garden, it says that God moved with the, with, with the wind or whatever. Yeah. Um, it could imply a kind of stormy wind as well. We, we don't know. It doesn't say that explicitly, but there could be something like a whirlwind happening, right? Yeah. I, I think that's significant. I mean, there's, I mean, even the book, there's, there's a whirlwind of arguments going back. There's ignorance everywhere. I mean, there's just something to it that is just fascinating, this created effect. Yeah. Uh, and then God will say, I am the Lord of creation. It's just funny how God often is revealing himself and Christ does exactly the same thing. Like Christ is manifesting himself through natural means, right? Like whenever he's showing his glory, right? Like his first miracle at, at the wedding feast of Cana, he's turning water to wine and he's taking a natural thing and doing something with it to reveal himself, right? Like he's walking on water. He's you know, doing these sort of, you know, he's calming storms. It's like all this like very natural language that's all pointing forward to who he is you know here's a right. revelation of my identity now if you want to know god you have to know god for me and yeah. uh you know, see natural means are all right through this. it's just that they're limited there's a limit to them right you can see this in job there's a lot that's being said about god but there's a limit and there's something else that needs to be required where god's actually now going to come down and speak in a very specific or special way uh, robert alter makes the point that I think chapter 38 here is, is almost a word for word um, reply to Job three where Job is basically on the, you know, that death poem, right? Where he wishes yeah, for right, the death. lament. Yeah. So he says, um, so Alter says uh, basically this is an image for image response to the death poem that frames Job's entire argument. The unusual phrase darkens counsel is not merely an indication of speaking ignorantly as the parallel in the second verse that spells out, but a rejoinder to the spate of images of darkness, blotting out light in the death wish poem of chapter three. In point in contrast to that poem, the opening section of the voice from the whirlwind, whirlwind introduces images of light and then traces a dynamic interplay between light and darkness. So no. I, this is an interesting thing. Um, and the other thing to note, uh, you haven't said it yet, I don't think, is that one of the things that Job says is he, he needs a meter. He wants to defend himself before God. Yeah. That if, if you want to say that Job gets anything wrong, and I think in this case he does, it's not like necessarily sinfully wrong, like in terms of why he was punished but he thinks that he can defend himself to God. Like he, yeah. he thinks that a creature can fathom the creator and have a way to communicate that, you know what I mean? Like he thinks that he can 
it, 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 that God is like him in a certain sense. That's what yeah, he's or that he has on. some sort of direct access to God yeah. without the mediator in a way. Yeah, there's, there's just it's just interesting things happening here. Um, what else? I mean, there's just he goes on and on talks about Leviathan, Behemoth, that he rules over creation. Um, um, just going through this here, and then finally we get to. Um, <laughs> it's interesting. It's interesting uh, this is just a sort of side thought that I've had here. That's probably worth exploring in thirty-eight too. Is that when God's chastising Job for this, He says He's talking about these things like you know, rain and waters, and then He turns in thirty-one and He says, "Can you bind the ch- chains of the Pleiades uh, or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth?" the Maseroth and their season. And then can you ha- guide the bear with its children? Th- those are all reference to the constellation of the stars, right? Yep. And, uh, but it's also weird because where did con- like constellations, right? Are, are not like, you know, that I'm, I'm looking at an article here um, where it, these are not like, how do you want to put it? Like they're biblical categories because Job's you were referring to them, but like, Mesopotamian, ancient Near Eastern cultures, ancient China, they've all got an understanding of the constellations. You know what I mean? Well, he's the Lord uh, of nature. So these are things that you can perceive in nature. Yeah. It's yeah, a Roman and it's, one kind of put to words. It's just funny that it's like he can, God himself can use in a way, in a way kind of like pagan categories uh, to talk about, you know, himself, you know? So like if somebody, somebody from Mesopotamia was listening in on this, this indictment here, I know what those are, <laughs> you know, like that's part of my culture right. too. Um, and so it's like another interesting kind of like natural law sort of thing here, I think. But Well, I think if God is the Lord of creation, then like he, <laughs> so I'll put it this way. God has so bestowed us with the organ of reason such that we can recognize in creation what is true and real and therefore yeah. trace those effects back to their cause. So I, mean, I don't think I, I not, we should expect this. If, yeah. if stuff like this wasn't in the Bible, it would be like weird that it wouldn't correspond to reality. Yeah, like, we'd actually it would actually seem made up then. It would seem made up, but because God is the Lord of act- the real creation, and therefore things like this are accessible to everyone. Yeah. Uh, that's actually a good thing. We want that to be true. Yeah. Um, so chapter forty is is uh, is uh, Job's first answer. So forty verse one, and the Lord answered Job. It's Yahweh there, and he said, okay. uh, "Will he who disputes with Shaddai be reproved?" Who argues with God? Let him answer. Again, he's just saying, look, you really are unable to dispute with me. And Job answered Yahweh and said, look, I'm worthless. What can I say back to you? My hand I put over my mouth. Once I have spoken, I will not answer. Twice, and will not go on. And the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. And he said, again, he kind of goes on. But look at verse uh, eight and nine. I I don't know if the verses are, are wrong yet. Will you indeed thwart my case? Hold me guilty so you can be right? Um, so he's going on and on. He's, he's basically, this is, this is the courtroom scene, but it doesn't work out like Job was hoping. No. <laughs> um, have you, an, it's like crazy, right? He's like dressed for action, like a man, you know, like the, the footnote here gives us as like, gird up your loins. Right. So like, you know, get ready to get ready to do something. Basically in, in the ancient world, you pulled up your skirt. <laughs> yeah. Right. So you could wrap up your belt. And then he says, if you got an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like his, which is interesting here, the use of anthropomorphisms, you know, and, uh, and it's, it's like, you know, who, who are you, <laughs> you know, to, to, to make any, you, you can, you can stand before me, you can be ready for action, but this is, you're just not, you're not on the right playing field here. 
then this chapter uses these these great beasts, behemoth and Leviathan to illustrate that you know he made these even I guess they're powerful, something like that. Yeah. Um then you have the second answer in Job 42. Yeah. And Job answered the Lord and he said, I know you can do anything and no devising is beyond you. Uh, he quotes God in Job 38. Who is this obscuring counsel without knowledge? Yep. It was a bit of a change, but it's that idea. Therefore, I told, but I did not understand. Wonders beyond me that, that I did not know. Again, going back to your point, it's about knowledge of God. Yep. Here, pray and I will speak. Let me ask you that, you that you may inform me. Again, I believe this is, yeah, chapter 38, verse 3. Uh, Alter has a note on that. Uh, then, then Job continues, but the ears rumor I have, by the ears rumor I've heard of you. And now my eye has seen you. Therefore do I recant and I repent in dust and ashes. That's kind of the end of the conversation. This is, this is the end of the book proper in terms of like the, the speeches. Yeah. And it ends by basically I repent in dust and ashes. Yeah. From dusty came from dusty repents or in dusty yeah. repents. Yeah. Yeah. Cause even Elihu's going to make that, he's going to say things like, Hey, I'm just like you. I'm pulled from the clay just like you are and all this kind of stuff, you know, and Adam being made from the dust. Yeah. A lot of the, a lot of the dust here, I think is, I mean, dust is, is of the earth. There's you know, all that kind of stuff throughout. It's a fascinating way to end. He, um, well, what do you think about how the book ends? I mean, I know it's not the ending actually. We're going to get to the vindication, right. part, the ending of the, the speech part. I think there's a, there's a, this is in a way now it's like when we kind of read the rest of, of the canon, uh, it's, it's kind of typical of how God responds to these sorts of things, right? Like you see this again happening in, in Jonah, right? Jonah's now livid that God is now, he's a misunderstanding who God is. Actually, he understands, but he misapplies. He's a little bit like Elihu here, where it's like Jonah's like, I know that you're kind and gracious, right? He's got that kind of creedal statement there. He says, I know you're going to be kind to the Ninevites, and I don't like it. You know, and so then God doesn't even dignify Jonah with an answer to any of his complaints. He's just like, who are you? He's like, you're happy when I gave you this thing over your head, the gourd or whatever, and then I made it go away. Like, you know, like same kind of natural sort of things. I did this for you. He doesn't even dignify Jonah's request to die. <laughs> you know, it's the same sort of thing. And then you get the same sort of, uh, in the New Testament when you think of Christ, right? Like when you think about how in, was it John 20? When uh, doubting Thomas comes up, you know, to the disciples are like, hey, he's risen. He's like, I will not believe you. He, you know, I need to actually put my finger in his, in, his, in his wounds here before I'll actually believe this. Jesus appears eight days later and, uh, and, he, and, he, and he lets Thomas do it. He lets him do it. And then he tells him to believe, not to, not to disbelieve. But he and, and all that happens is what is that, that Thomas is now given a revelation of who Jesus is. And he immediately says, you're my Lord and my God. And then Christ just accepts the worship. He doesn't even, it's almost like he doesn't acknowledge it. And, uh, and then just says, hey, listen, blessed are those who actually believe by the word of the testimony of my people than having to actually see it. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? And here's like language of sight in Job. Like you can see, like there's these interesting parallels. Like Christ is the redeemer in Job. He is the mediator in Job. And like, he is, he is actually God. Um, He's got all the same types of responses. Well, before Christ, before the word became flesh to accommodate himself to our ability to comprehend, seeing God was devastating. So yeah. Isaiah 6, yeah. uh, Isaiah is not relaxed in the presence of God. I'm a man no, of unclean no, no, no. lips. I, in fact, it's actually your brother-in-law 
uh, Clint Humphrey. Uh, I remember, I'll, and I say this every time I talk about Isaiah 6 in my theology classes, I always use exactly the same phrase Clint uh, once said about it to me. He's like, it was like Isaiah became unglued. <laughs> you know, he's unglued. just, yeah, he's just completely falling apart before God, right? And he needs a mediator. He needs redemption uh, yep. and atonement too, right? On his lips. Yeah, being in God's presence uh, before Christ is is devastating. It unglues you. Yeah. And one of the benefits is that, I mean, Job asked for a mediator in this book. He doesn't get any, any just any mediator, but actually the word of God takes on human flesh. So that, remember, First John opens up what we've seen, what we felt, what we've touched. Yeah. Like he becomes not only comprehensible, but sensible. Yeah. A sensible in the traditional sense, like our senses, right? Like, yeah, yeah. sight is right here. It is, it is one of the most amazing things to consider that before Christ, devastating, incomprehensible. The, the, when Moses got close, it became dark. Yeah. When Job saw God, devastated. But when, um, when uh, you know, a woman caught in adultery comes to see the Lord Jesus Christ, she's elevated. Yeah. Right? It is the, the coming downs that we might go up. Uh, it is just kind of this great work of grace. And Job 43, I think, the end of the book. 43. Is, uh, well, sorry, whatever. Sorry, for, sorry, 42, you're right. The end of the book, uh, <laughs> the special edit you don't know about. <laughs> appendix. <laughs> the appendix. Sorry, you don't, I have the secret Bible. Um, the, uh, it ends, I think, in a way that shows that grace upon grace is more prevalent than, you know, whatever you want to say, punishment upon punishment. You were talking, yeah. so give, give me some words on that because we were talking about this earlier. Yeah, it's like, it's the gratuitousness of grace, right? So it's, there's a weird sense where like God goes overboard in that he's like, he's restoring Job and he's giving him all this extra stuff. He's got this status. He's even like, he's, he's got his priesthood back, but now he's actually like atoning for the sins of his accusers, you know, <laughs> which is hilarious. Uh, and God accepts. Now it's Yahweh accepts George, uh, George, George's prayers. George's uh, prayer. St. George, we got it. Yeah. St. <laughs> George, I'm a good Englishman here. Um, and it says here, right? Like in verse 10, uh, the, and the Lord Yahweh gave Job twice as much as he had before. So it's, it, it, it's this overabounding grace. Um, yet at the same time, there is something strangely like unsatisfying about it when we read it, right? Um, so he gets kids back. And it's like, well, great. I mean, that's awesome that he has more kids. But I mean, it's not like I get in a car accident and then I get a new car. I'm like, hey, my insurance you know, got me in this new car. This is great. You know, I'm happy. I don't even care about the old one now. This one's like, well, if I get more kids, I still, I'm, I'm still thinking about those that have, that have lost and right. still lamenting their loss. And this is still devastating, you know. So it feels like here's a show of how God works. He gives more than we ever expect or need. Because Job doesn't act. If, if God ended, if everything ended here in verse six, that would be great. Nothing wrong would be said. So then you get the then you get the addition of God rebuking Job's friends, and then the, that their that Job himself is restored, um, which is just pointing to like how good God is in the midst of all this. And yet there's something unsatisfying, which I think points us forward. Yeah, to exactly. There's like there's always in the Old Testament this forward looking to some sort of fulfillment of these things that's going to bring the right obviously that is going to be christ right he's going to be the full satisfaction of all of this i think one helpful distinction to make too is like the writer of job is probably different than job himself um and so you have to ask like what is he actually trying to communicate by the book with his ending because yeah. what you just said is exactly right like i don't i 
it's not if your kid it, who cares if you get a replacement it's still it's devastating right yeah. um but i think what's trying to be communicated theologically here is that god's grace is greater than the sort of our suffering in a sense like it's yeah. not the final word yeah there's a lot more it looks forward we need to know that there's life after death we need to know that there's a reunion and all that kind of stuff yeah. But I think what's being said here is something very, I mean, when in the Old Testament, when God reveals himself, it's, I think, always, uh, it, it's always in the context of God's grace being greater than his wrath. So one of the key examples, Exodus 34, which is repeated throughout scripture, it is the, the main testimony of God. John 1 kind of cites it and, and shows Christ as the grace upon grace. Uh, what's happening there is, uh, you know, Moses sees God's glory. And what God says there is, look, I actually show mercy and so on to thousands. Yeah. Then it's basically his punishment, his vengeance is only to the third or fourth generation. That, that word thousands versus third or fourth is showing you the greatness of God's grace and mercy yeah. versus the shortness and the limit of God's wrath. Because in the Old Testament, although there's more wrath, the reason there is, is because people are sinful, not because God prefers wrath to grace. Right. It's just the opposite. He prefers grace to wrath, and that's why he—that's that, why the word incarnates. <laughs> but the reason there's more wrath is not because God is more wrathful than we, and we should be terrified of that. It's because people are more evil, <laughs> and we should be terrified of that. Yeah. Um, but actually, when God reveals Himself, He actually claims to be more merciful and gracious than He is wrathful. Yeah. yeah that's it's massive, and that's everywhere in Scripture, right? Because this gets repeated. The word thousand too, like is is uh, is uh, in the Psalms in particular, lined up with eternity everlasting yep. or something to that effect in parallelism to show that they just mean a long limitless thing. And I think that's probably why thousands is mentioned. I don't think it means literally like 6,000 no. versus yeah, three or four. I think it means a boundless amount of grace and a limited amount of, of anger. You know, anger. And the reason is because God actually is a gracious God and God is love and God is holy. It's you don't play this off of each other. And God wishes, I mean, Calvin says that God doesn't, um, God always finds something to love in his creation. Yeah. <laughs> Look at that effect. Yeah. So yeah, of course, wrath is there because when we are evil and we meet just the justice of God, we can only experience that as wrath. Yeah. But when we're forgiven and in Christ, we meet that same justice and it's basically a smile <laughs> and yeah, we experience it then as vindication and love. Yeah. It's not because God has changed. It's because our, movement from wrath to grace has occurred by the uh, the work of the incarnate well the cross really but the work of the incarnation the cross the death all that kind of stuff resurrection and resurrection yeah um so it, it is one of those things where i think job it doesn't tell us how this all works we have hints of there there needs to be a mediator but i think in the, in the literary kind of purpose of this book the double blessing at the end. Cause I think he gets double of everything, right. Or something to that effect. Yeah, twice as much as he had before. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's, it's to show you that grace it's grace upon grace. Right. Um, but we do suffer in this life. We do live in a cursed world and we do evil. Uh, but I, I don't think that's, I mean, to use the language of the, of the book, gentle and lowly, I think, I think in God's inner self, he is, he is love. He is gentle. Yeah. His, his deepest heart rather. Yeah. Although that might be just Thomas Goodwin. I don't know. Whoever said that first. <laughs> right. It's interesting you use the language of vindication a minute ago, because, you know, when we think of vindication and, uh, you know, we're thinking of something more, we're, we're trying to connect this to, to Christ. 
Um, you have like resurrection theme. It seems like in Job, you know, I'm going to see my, I'm going to see my redeemer, even though I'm dead, I'm going to see him in my flesh, uh, which seems to be kind of hinting at a resurrection. When you look at uh, verse 11 of 42, it says, then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who'd known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil or disaster, as the variant says, that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. That's vindication language, right? Those are all the people that had turned their backs on him, right? And accused him and all the rest of it. He's horrible. What's going on here? And now they've all come back, right? He's been vindicated in this courtroom of God. And in a weird way, it's like he's got this new life, right? So is there typology here, right? When you're thinking of Christ, again, one who's everybody's turned their backs on him. He's become despised because he's taken on human sin. He's suffering more than any Job, a billion Jobs will ever suffer. And, um, and Christ in his resurrection, raised from the dead, is vindicated, right? Before the world that has just accused him, God vindicates Christ in the resurrection. This is then how we receive our justification, because what is justification? It's, it's vindication, right? And so we in Christ now are vindicated before the accuser. So it just seems like all that pointing forward is looking forward to what Christ is going to come and do. And there's like, it's almost like Job it's got some typological function with this. Well, I think of God by his providence, organized scripture to be what it is today. Yeah. And God is one and has one covenant of redemption. Yeah. You have to admit that there, there kind of necessarily have to be at least indications or hints of all this or else God would be divided. That's not the case. Yeah. So sometimes we get a little confused. Like what do the human author know? What do the divine author know? I don't want to get into those details, but I just think, look, if God is ultimately behind scripture, and God is one and has one plan of redemption. It stands to reason that you're going to have hints of things like, yeah. I, I don't know how far you want to go, but him, I mean, breaking bread and then having celebration, yeah. There's yeah. body broken for you, all that kind of stuff. I don't know if that's what's being said. I'm just noting like those are not out of bounds. Those kinds of yeah. observations, they are, yeah, be careful. Don't go crazy. But like God is one has one message, one purpose of redemption. You don't have to separate those things and be nervous about I, I think we need to be careful, uh, but we don't need to be nervous about overstating God's grace, his one plan, no, redeemer for us. <laughs> like, right. You can misapply it with antinomianism or something, but like you can't. Yeah, you can misapply it. I, but I, I don't think, at least in our circles, I don't think that's the danger typically. I think the danger is on the other side that we are, are too careful and we don't see that scripture is for us and for our salvation. To communicate our salvation, it's for us. Yeah. Uh, all these things were written in these, these latter days are for us. Paul will tell us it's that we might know how to live well, but it's also to prophesy of Christ and Job maybe doesn't have like, you know, the same obvious things like Genesis is it three fifteen that promise. And yet he's asking for a redeemer. Right. <laughs> and, and yet, yeah, you're right. The, his new life is better than his first life. So there's all these indications of a consistent moral universe and redemptive pattern that we see. I also think you have an unjust, uh, you have, sorry, a just sufferer who is accused of injustice, which is different than Christ. I get it. But there's also patterns that you can see that are consistent in the moral universe that God has given yeah. us. Um, I think this is a good place to stop. We stopped in the gospel and we talked a lot about cool things. So I, that was really fun to study this book. We are, yeah. we may do a bonus episode on the book of Job, but we are going to, I think, head back to Calvin's Institutes, which I'm pumped about. I've been teaching on yeah, Calvin yeah. and my, uh, my brain is excited again. So. Yeah. Well, it'd be fun to talk to Owen Anderson and get some of his philosophical insights on this text too. So. Exactly. Yeah. So we'll try to do both those things. Thanks Ian. We'll see you next time. Cheers.